My guest today is ruthlessly practical. You know him as the author of six, maybe seven, I think six, count them six, very provocative books about business and human behavior. I first came into Dan Pink's work with his book called A Whole New Mind. The subtitle for that is Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future. And if you don't know your right brain from your left brain, the right brain is the creative side, so to speak. I think they may have debunked the right brain, left brain thing uh, since that concept was originally introduced. But A Whole New Mind really shifted my belief in what was possible for creativity. You know, and when I wrote Creative Calling, it was very much about how to expand the definition of creativity. And I will confess that A Whole New Mind was a really influential and key part of framing that. And, um, you know, back in 2008, Oprah Winfrey gave away 4,500 copies of this book to the Stanford University graduating class when she gave the keynote because it's such a profound book that helps us understand the future and the power of creativity. So, of course, you know that I would subscribe to anything that Dan Pink put out. It's a fantastic conversation that we have today on the show. Um, as I mentioned, there's a handful of other books. I won't dive into them now because we touch on each of them across the arc of today's show. But again, as I mentioned early, Dan is a ruthlessly practical thinker, and he takes his creativity, puts us through what I envision is this, this sieve, this ruthlessly practical sieve, and then you get the you get maximum creativity and maximum practicality, which is one of the reasons he's so prolific and is incredibly inspiring and helpful for those of us um, who find ourselves either shoegazing or staring at the stars a little bit too much when we, what we really ought to be doing is getting to work. Um, let's see what else about Dan. Gosh, he has been all over the place. His um, television series about human behavior has been aired in more than 100 com uh, countries. He's appeared on NPR, PBS, CNN, ABC, all, all over the place. Um, and in 2019, Thinkers 50, that London-based outfit, named him one of the most influential uh, thinkers in the world of management and business that there ever have been. So you're not going to want to miss this episode. Really excited to get you into it. But before we do, just a super quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be off with Dan Pink. Check this out, y'all. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is sponsored by Creative Life for Business. This is different than the regular old creative live. So whether you love, passionately love where you work or it's sort of like meh, or on the other side, if, if it's a creative wasteland and you want to inspire some change in the place that you work, you're not alone. Studies say that three out of four people, that's right, 75% of people say they're not living up to their creative potential at work. If so, I want to introduce you to Creative Live's newest product. It's called Creative Live for Business. And in a nutshell, it's a way to get access to all of Creative Life's content for your entire team and or entire company, and maybe bring in some much needed energy and innovation to that team or company simply by going to creativelive.com slash teams. Now, Creative Live for Business is already in service of several of the top creative firms on the planet and a powerhouse list of many of the Fortune 100 top brands. These brands care about creativity and innovation. And you know what? These companies pay for this for their employees. So it doesn't matter if you're a team of five people, 55, or, or if there's 50,000 people in the company. If this sounds interesting to you and you want to check it out, either you can check it out or refer your boss to Creative Live by sending them to creativelive.com slash teams. Remember, the most forward-thinking companies, they prioritize things like creative skills, like design thinking, leadership, collaboration, wellness, 
And again, with Creative Life for Business, you get access to all that taught by some of the top instructors in the world all on Creative Live. So again, you can visit or send your boss a link to creativelive.com slash teams to learn more. Dan, welcome to the show, man. Happy to have you. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. And um, I'm hailing from the uh, the West today. We con- confession for people who are listening at home: we are not in the same room. Uh, where are you, Dan? What's going on? Well, we're on the same continent. I'm in the other Washington. I'm in Washington D.C., where I live and work, and I'm talking to you from Ground Zero, Pink Ink World Headquarters, which is the garage behind my house. <laughs> Pink Ink, I love it. I love it. Well, um, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so I would like to dive right in. And I'm going to start my um, questions, if you will. I'm going to go way back, and uh, I'm most familiar with your work originally. Um, Of course, I'd I'd seen it on the internet, but my own personal experience with your book, A Whole New Mind, uh, Why Right Brainers Will Rule the Future. And um, without going, you know... uh, well, I guess we'll, we'll we'll keep it on the surface first with your background. How do you identify yourself? I often, you know, read a little intro as I did for this particular podcast, and I write that without your consent. So sometimes I want to make sure that I'm describing you in a way that you want to be described for the folks at home who are either new to your work or um, haven't touched it recently. Um, how do you think about your work? And then I'd like to step off of that um, that intro, that little salvo that you'll give us here, and then into a whole new mind. So take it from the top. So how how do I think about my work, or so how do I describe myself? Is that yeah, yeah? Like when you tell people. So what if you I'm do, on a, if I, if I'm on a bus and someone next to me says, "Hey, what do you do?" or my kids, somebody asks my kids, "Hey, what does your dad do for a living?" Yeah. Okay, so that's an easy one. Uh, I'm a writer. Period. Period. That's at the center. Of- Period. Yeah, that's at the center of everything that I do. I mean, I, I I end up doing other stuff, but but that's at the that that is at the giant white hot center of everything that I do, and that's how I would, that's how I would describe that's how I do describe myself, and that's how again, um, I think if you ask my wife, what does your husband do for a living? Oh, he's a writer. What did they ask my kids, what does your dad do for a living? He's a writer. And then, how do you choose your topics? Because that's one of the things is. Um... You know, one of, I guess, the ways that I try and select people to be on the show is they tend to have a diverse in, a diverse set of interests and they are, unlike other peers, able to go really, really deep and become world-class experts. And it seems like you've, um, you've, <laughs> you've, you've gone deep on so many different topics. How do you, again, I, I was just confessing my first really deep dive into your material was A Whole New Mind, Why Rate Brainers Will Rule the Future. Um, but how do you choose your topics and then generally, and then specifically what got you interested in, in creativity and the right brain world? So, uh, so on the first part, I mean, I, I, I choose my topics pretty much by what I'm interested in. Uh, and that's for two reasons. One, uh, I, I, I figure what I'm interested in is probably similar to what other people are interested in. I think a lot of times individuals, human beings think that they're somehow specially, really, really special, unique and wildly different from other people. But I figure, hey, if I'm interested in something, other people are likely interested in it. And the second, perhaps even more important thing is that um, writing a book is so hard. It's so difficult. It takes so much time. It's such torture that one has to pick a topic that one is really, 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 really interested in. <laughs> and so and, and something that you're 
willing to talk about for a very, very long time. So, I mean, whole new, a whole new mind is a good example of that. That book came out like, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. And I'm still more than happy to talk about it anytime, anywhere. Cause I think the topic is so, is so interesting. So I pick my topics based on, on, on really my own curiosity, uh, more than anything else. And then, um, and, and also, you know, the other layer of it is, do I have something new to say about it? So I might, I might be interested in, I don't know, supply chain management, but I'm not, but let's suppose that I were, um, I probably wouldn't have anything. I probably wouldn't have anything interesting to say on that topic. So with specifically then with, um, a whole new mind, why, you know, you clearly then were fascinated with creativity and the concept of the right brain and how that was going to leverage into, um, upside for the people that identified with that in, in the future. And here we are, since you wrote that book, you said 15 years ago, we are 15 years into the future then. And basically everything that you'd said, <laughs> you said would come true is coming true. Um, mm -hmm. Why, why the, why the interest or the, the willingness to dive super deep into, into creativity and um, what was the basis of the book? Yeah. So, so in a way, I, I mean, I think that it's true for, creatives like you or me or other kinds of creatives is that there's a lot of serendipity involved in what you actually come to work on. And so for me on that particular book, there were two things that were somewhat unique to me that ended up being serendipitous. Uh, one of them, as, and they're going to sound weird. One of them was uh, I grew up in Ohio and I grew up in Ohio when the rust belt was rusting. And so it became pretty clear when I was growing up that it was no one was going to be able, very few people were going to be able to leave high school, get a job in a factory and have a middle class standard of living that the rules were changing on us at that time. Um, and so that had me. And, and so that was sort of like in the air, um, ultimately in my bloodstream as a kid growing up. And um, I had a dull sense that that was happening again in America based on some other work and writing and stuff that I'd done that that a lot of these white collar jobs could be subject to the same forces as some of these blue collar jobs were a generation earlier. Uh, and I started seeing some stirrings of that. Um, I don't know if I would have been aware of those stirrings had I not grown up in Ohio and kind of felt this other change going on in my midst. The second thing that was sort of peculiar was, uh, I, so I, 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 I ended up going to law school uh, a couple years after college and, and I, and it was in, I, I really didn't like it. And, I ended up leaving after my first year and I went to India instead uh, because I had some money in my pocket and I could travel and a 25 year old in India in the late 1980s could travel very far and wide on very little money. And, uh, and so I started, we just came fascinated by India and I was just, I was one of the, I just ended up writing about the whole offshoring to India issue before a lot of other people, because I was interested in India. And once again, I saw that what was happening in India, the, the move of white collar work to places like India was very similar to the move of blue collar work to places like China and Vietnam and whatnot. And so anyway, so I put all these things together in a soup and I said, OK, I think there's something going on here. I think what's going on is that the skills that used to get you into the middle class, these logical, linear, sequential SAT spreadsheet skills are still necessary, but they're not sufficient. Uh, because those things are easily automated and easily outsourced, much like routine mass production work was a generation ago. And so what's going to matter more? Well, it's going to end up what's going to matter more are things that are harder to outsource and automate. And those end up being things that are more about creativity, about 
innovation, about uh, empathy, about uh, uh, seeing around corners, about combining disparate things into something new. And uh, and so that was the so that was the hunch that I had. And then I started doing some research to try to ver- see if I could verify that hunch. And I did. And that's how that book came to be. I'm curious when you said you did some research, like where do you go is, you know, I just dropped a, a book on creativity called Creative Calling in, in September. And my source, my research material was a lot of it was anecdotal with my own life. Of course, there's yeah. a, a lot, a lot of stuff out there. But where did you turn to? to, you know, to capture when you say research, like what were your, what was the raw material that you used to uh, it, it, form it was, uh, it, uh, it was, it's a whole variety of things. And I think that's really important to take into a whole bunch of different inputs. So it could be things like data from the United States Labor Department, but it could also be things like interviews that I, that I ended up doing. Um, so uh, uh, it could also, it was also things like what is, um, uh, what sorts of hiring patterns are companies having? Uh, why are big companies suddenly recruiting at arts and design colleges and hiring people with MFAs rather than only MBAs? And so for me, there's, there's rarely a single source of research. It's more multiple streams to see what I can find in each one and then put it all together. Did you identify as a creator at that time Would you, when you, know, you, of course, went to India, some self-discovery post-law school was part of your law school time. Was it about being dissatisfied with law school? Was it dissatisfied with law? Was it just that, that, you know, it didn't feel creative and you were tapping into this part of yourself? Like what, what was the, yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. Like I hesitate to call myself, even though I did it earlier, uh, you know, call myself a creative or creative. Uh, I, I don't really think about it that way. One of the things that bugged me about, so here's the thing. So, so, you know, so I went to I went to college. I did well in college, and 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 I at the time I was you know really interested in things like politics and government. And so a natural path, sort of an easy path, was to go to law school because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I had this vague set of interests. And and being again a middle class kid from Ohio, the 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 messages one were, were like many middle class kids was getting is like, hey, you got to play it safe. You got to need something to fall back on. And so I went there, and and what I realized is that. It, are a couple of things. Number one, it's like, crap, this is what lawyers actually do. This is incredibly boring. I don't want to do that. And two, uh, I'm not very good at it. And and so that's kind of a bummer. Uh, and if I had more guts, I probably would have left altogether. I didn't. Uh, I managed to persevere uh, for better or worse. But, um, but I think one of the things that bugged me, and this is getting at your question, Chase, is this, that, that much of what, much of the training in law school, indeed, much of the uh, set of skills that people identify as quote unquote being smart are about deconstruction. Let me take that argument and knock it this and knock it down. Let me take what you're saying and show you where you're wrong. Um, and so, and, and, and my instinct as a human being was always, Hey, if there's something wobbly, it's like, let's see if we can make it stand up stronger rather than and the lawyer instinct is always, there's something wobbly. Let's show how we can knock it down. So it's a difference between, a kind of a muscle, sort of a, a, a the 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 first move being deconstruction versus construction. And I was always somebody who was about construction. Hey, let's try it. Let's see if it can work. Um, and well, I was in a profession that was very much about deconstruction. I was in a profession that really prized those kinds of skills. Those were things that were not part of as much a part of who I was. And I was less good at it than I was at, at the things that were more constructive. 
So at what point then, if you said just to, to start that, uh, that point off, you mentioned you didn't, and actually, you know, the, the, the label creator, part of what I'm trying to get at here is yeah. for, for people to look at the, the opportunities that you brought up in a whole new mind, namely that right brain dynamic thinking, um, nonlinear is, is so valuable and yet in large part, you know, your background in Ohio and the Rust Belt and the practicality <laughs> is such a burden for so many families. And, and, you know, that's in part what I wrote about it in, in my book was the, the label was the hardest thing for me to get over. And as soon as I was able to, which label, the label of the not being creative, my second grade teacher oh. said, Oh, Chase is, you know, and I loved very, very passionate about art and I mean, magic shows and I had a comic book and I, again, go back to second, second grade chase here. But, and I overheard in a parent teacher conference, my second grade teacher tell my parents that Chase is so much better at sports than he is at art. And so as mm. a second grader, I wasn't crushed about not being good at art, but I certainly ran toward the thing that I was applauded for. Or, mm. and, and if you look at that in a larger context, what we're really doing is we're, we're steering our kids, you know, with those little, those little nudges. And for me, it got me, it, it served itself well because I went to college on a soccer scholarship, but it really mm -hmm. got me what I would say off track for, you know, 10 or 15 years just by listening to these inputs. And so I'm thinking back to your experience in the Rust Belt and your identity of, you know, identifying as a creator or not. But here you are, uh, you know, multi best-selling author in numerous topics where you've had to learn and create something from nothing. So how does that label a affect you? Do you, you, you mentioned your sort of, um, distance from the term creator or, or, or artist or author or whatever, not necessarily author. Cause you identified with that, but you know, how, how, how do you now own that, that you understand that? No, you're I don't, you know what? The truth, the truth, I don't even think about it that much. I, I really don't. I just like do my stuff, you know? Um, like, so, so I don't say, Oh, I'm creative or I'm not creative. I, I truly don't ever think about that. I just try to get good work done. <laughs> and, you know, like, like the rest of I think that, but I think that's true for a lot of people that yeah. like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm spending, I mean, I just find it more interesting to just get stuff done to do what I can to make things with, and the things that I make typically are books or articles or some videos and things like that, but just to make stuff that's good. But I don't sit around saying, Oh, am I creative or am I not creative? I mean, truly, I, I mean, like, I actually, like, until this conversation, I, I essentially never thought about that question, whether I'm creative or not. I love it. I love it. And so I think as someone who... Because I, basically, I would, who gives a shit? I mean, here's the thing. Who gives a yeah. shit whether I think of myself as, as creative? What people care about is, did he produce something good and useful for the world? And then, and if you can say yes to that, you know, my, my yeah, response say, is that then, then you're a creator because you made God something. God bless you. Nothing. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 But, and your, your but, point but, is but, then, but, and but, next, but my, next, my, get on with and, it. And my, yeah. Yeah. And my point is like, thank you very much for that, for labeling me that way. Now it's time for me to get back to work. <laughs> well, I love that. I'm going to go into a couple of uh, abilities that you talk about in that book. Again, yeah. These are some of the ones that really um, helped me. Um, both understand the world a little bit more and uh, attach me to your work. And that is the six abilities 
um, design, story, symphony, empathy, play, and meaning. Mm-hmm. How did you distill the mm-hmm. whole universe of <laughs> of yeah. uh, of of innate abilities into six? And which do you believe we should over-index on? Great question. So what I did for that is, so I had this, I had this argument. So, so it began with this argument supported by the evidence, which was that these SAT spreadsheet abilities were becoming necessary, but not sufficient. And these abilities that, as you said, we haven't taken seriously enough, artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking were becoming valuable uh, for a, a set of hard-headed reasons. They're hard to outsource and hard to automate. Uh, and then I, and then being a writer, I said, oh, I think there's a metaphor that describes this. And that's the metaphor of our brain. Metaphorically, our brains are complicated, but metaphorically, the left side deals with logical, linear, sequential processing. The right side deals with more holistic, contextual, um, synthetic processing. So, OK, that's a metaphor that can help people understand what's going on. It's like, OK, so I got that set and said, OK, so what are these abilities that are not SAT spreadsheet abilities? Uh, and I said, I don't know. Let's go find out. And so I had some guesses about what they were and I started doing interviews. And what I ended up doing was on a whiteboard in my office, just putting down just a massive list of what those things were um, to just iterating that. So maybe I put down, uh, I, I can't remember fully how much, how many things were on that list because it was actually, it's, it's a, it's a different office at the time, but I probably put down uh, in all maybe 45 things that people had said when I asked them that question or that I had thought and then I have a list, maybe even more than that, I think, maybe even like in the 50s. And then I started going through them and just running them past people, doing interviews with people saying, hey, you hire people. Are you looking for this particular ability? No, not at all. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things we look at. I started saying, well, what are the similarities among these abilities? Can any of them be combined? There were a lot of things that were swirling around what I ended up calling symphony, which is essentially big picture thinking. Um, uh, to some level, some extent, kind of inductive reasoning, big picture thinking, combining disparate things into something new. And so there were various there were various labels for that. And I said, wait a second, these are all kind of describing the same thing. That might be worth something. And so it was just, you know, iterate, get feedback, iterate again, get feedback, iterate again, get feedback, iterate again, we get feedback and start stress testing these, um, start, start stress testing uh, these things to see if they, they hold up. And then to see, again, is there research out there? Is, this, is, there, is there evidence, say, let's take something like empathy. Is there evidence that empathy is a valuable professional skill? And the answer is yes. And then I said, well, wait a second. This is so amazing. I just learned that um, certain medical schools are measuring physician empathy because they found that physicians, that, 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 that physician empathy correlates with high performance as a doctor, but things like MCAT scores do not. Whoa, that's really good. Let's talk, you know. Um, and so that's how it is. So it's, it's very much, it's very, um, you know, it's not, um, it's not, it's very iterative, you know, it's like test, you know, you know, come up with something, test it, come up with something, refine it, come up with something, test it again, refine it again, test it again, refine it again, do some more research, test that, you know, that's how it goes. I mean, it's not, it's very, um, it's, it's very laborious. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's the, no, it is, it's, 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 um, it's um, my wife allows me to use one sports metaphor a day, so I'll use it here. Um, it, it's uh, it's sort of it reminds me of like if you look at say uh, college, but also uh, especially NFL offenses today. 
they're all running spread offenses. They're passing all the time. And when I was growing up, again, growing up in Ohio in the era of Woody Hayes and the Ohio State Buckeyes, it was three yards in a cloud of dust, right? Hand off the ball, power through the line, get three yards. Hand off the ball, power through the line, get three of the yards. Hand off the ball, power through the line, get three more yards. Four yards, say, in that case, got a first down, do it again. And so that's sort of how I, I do more sort of my work style is much more three yards in a cloud of dust rather than like like complicated flea flickers and spread offenses and six tight ends. <laughs> so now I can't use a sports metaphor until I go to sleep. But and so I really wanted to I really wanted to go deep on that one. <laughs> She's not here. You can use as many yeah. as you'd like. I won't reveal yeah. your yeah. I won't reveal the source of your uh, yeah. your examples. Um, so how then, if, if these traits were popping up, and as a part of your research, you would dive into them? Talk to me about how design surfaced in your work. Oh yeah. Well, design was that was at a time when design was less prominent than it is right now, and so there was a, there, there there was this idea that. Um, that design was really about prettifying things. When in fact, if you actually looked at what designers did, they weren't really prettifying things. They were making things work better. And one way to think about this is that any offering in the marketplace is a combination of utility and significance, utility and significance. So utility has to work. Significance, it has to have some other kind of attribute. And so if you look at, say, a commodity, a commodity is purely utility. So if you think about a spoon, like anybody can make a spoon, right? Uh, and, and what's the utility of a spoon? It has to be able to hold your cereal when you spoon it in, when you move it to your mouth or hold your soup when you move it to the mouth. But what 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 makes some people want to pay more for a spoon or get crazy over a spoon? It's all about significance. What does it look like? How does it feel? How does it make me feel? And one of the things that you see in a world where where um, where people's basic material needs, even in the space of all of our problems, People's base material needs are generally reasonably well satisfied. Um, what you uh, the, what what you have is that the only way to stand out in the marketplace is to make a huge leap in utility, make something radically different and better, or to offer a great amount of significance to take something that is you know has the same utility as some other offering, but actually infuse it with greater significance. And that's what designers do both. Designers infuse things with significance. They also make dramatic leaps in utility. They end up giving the world something it didn't know it was missing. And, and I think over time, I think that's a less novel insight today than it was 15 years ago, significantly. I think the world has, has, has moved very much in that direction um, so to the point where there are, you know, there are cities now. Uh, the um, um, uh, Los Angeles, I think, has a chief design officer in City Hall. So... So I think it's a growing recognition. 15 years ago was a little bit more interesting idea. Well, that's, you know, that's part of what is fascinated about me, fascinated me about your work is you, you called this 15 years ago. Um, not, not dissimilar. I started creative life 10 years ago and here we are where creativity and the ability to, you know, combine previously disparate items into new right. and useful things. Right. It's like, right. it's, it's completely transforming our culture. And if you look around, everything around us is designed. So absolutely, are you, are you reading the tea leaves? I mean, this is a, you know, uh, is it, is it just from talking to people? Like, how are you, how do you have this insight? I'm trying to understand and help people who are listening understand and get in the mind of how one 
thinker yourself yeah. has been able to see around the corner yeah, no, over yeah, and I, over I, and yeah. over. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and, I, and I'm not sure that I have enough self-awareness to give you a very clear, crisp window into that. Uh, for me, uh, for me, the way I, uh, the, sort of the, the, the principles are, um, it, it, the principles are is, is reading and collecting and absorbing a lot of material. I think there's, a, I think there's something to be said for quantity of material, uh, and certainly something to be said for diversity of material. So, uh, so. So, you know, I will, I will read, like, let's, let's take, you know, magazines or email newsletters or websites. So I will read, um, I will get email newsletters from, say, Art News, but I'll also get it from the National Bureau of Economic Research. And believe it or not, if you expose yourself to both of those things, you see, hey, there's some connections between those two. And then you also start, so, so I'll read fiction. I'll read about sports. I'll read a lot about science. I'll read a lot about social science, uh, but also read some history. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll read about art and, uh, uh, you know, the things that I watch on the things that I watch. Uh, so, you know, I will watch a, um, I mean, I just watched a doc called abstract is on, on Netflix, uh, about, oh, it's uh, amazing. Amazing. Doc. It's a great show. Yeah. But about, about, uh, about, uh, Oliver, uh, uh, Ellison, the um, uh, Norwegian uh, kind of conceptual artist. Okay, it was it was amazing. But I'll watch that. But I'll also watch a documentary about how Andy Murray, the tennis player, recovered from injury. You know, um, and I'll watch Silicon Valley. So I think that I think that it's really for me what's helpful is trying to absorb a diverse amount of trying to absorb a diverse amount of things and not be too siloed into one particular area. And is that, is that, you know, what we're really talking about here is your, your artistic process and on the macro level, then is your process, like you're consuming things that have, that are vaguely interesting to you, you go deep on them. And then is it a process of patterns emerging? Because what, I, and I'm trying to yeah. juxtapose yeah, this. That's a good, yeah, that's a good, that's a good way to look at it. That's a more articulate way of describing it than I just did. It no, is, it, it is, it is, it is actually, I, I do think that some of it is pattern recognition. But the thing is, patterns, to me, patterns emerge. They're, they're not so much, it's not like I go out looking for them. They emerge by exposing myself to many different things. Again, I don't want to over-intellectualize that or, or describe it as some kind of mystical process. It's just like it begins with being curious, and it's, it begins with being curious. And, and being curious is about exposing yourself to different ideas, but also being open that a lot of these ideas have connections that other people might not be seeing. That's the gem I was looking for right there. I think yeah. that to me as I'm, you know, listening to you talk and and I'm literally scrolling across all the different, you know, books that you've got out in the world and I've done a little bit of research on each of them and there's just it's such a, a breadth of information but you can see these patterns that um I think so much of what people that are in my audience are they don't know where to start and you said yeah. the word five times like curiosity i was curious i you know it's like there's this uh, just a willingness to explore and consume a lot of things that are vaguely interesting to you and it people want it to be a lot more sophisticated when that when you, it goes back to your yeah. football analogy like three yards yeah. in a cloud of dust right yeah no that's a great i i see where you're going yeah that's a great point and again like as i said before like it, at some level we're each the worst uh analysts of our own process <laughs> Because we're not, we're, we're seeing it from the wrong 
part of the lens. We're thinking from the wrong side of the lens in many cases. And yeah. so, and so, so, so it's like a smart person like you, if I describe in this half-assed way what I'm doing, you might be able to provide some insight into what it is that I'm actually doing. But, <laughs> I'll, but I, I'll take all the credit. Yeah, thanks. But, for but your, no, but I mean that. But I, career. <laughs> no, no, but I, but I, but I, but I, but 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 I mean that. I think that you know, um, uh, I, I, you know, I want to try to be useful to your to your listeners here. One of the things is the exposure to a wide set of ideas and not get too like I know people here in Washington who. Um, you know, know everything about politics, but couldn't tell you one whit about, never would have heard of that show abstract. Okay. Um, and they can learn something from that um, yeah. in their, in, in actually building political campaigns in fashioning public policy. But what they're doing is that they're watching MSNBC and reading a few page, few particular pages of the Washington post and Politico and that's it. And that's cool. Again, there's something to be said for that kind of for, for that kind of depth in certain circumstances. But the depth to me is is, again, necessary, but not sufficient. You have to have some breadth and breadth is really, really interesting. And so simply being curious about a variety of things and exposing yourself to them, that's that's part of it. The other thing is that you have to expose yourself to them in a way where that that isn't. Um, uh, that is, it's always non-instrumental. So why do I read, say, uh, why do I read art news or why do I get, why am I, why am I on, on like gallery email list to see what they're offering, even though I'm probably not ever going to buy anything, right? Why? Because what is that, what's that going to do for me? And the answer is, I don't know, but that's cool. All right. Because if I had to calculate the ROI of everything that I did and expose myself to, that would narrow that would narrow the focus. And that's not what I want. I want to widen the focus. Um, and so you have to deal with the ambiguity of not knowing what you're actually so like looking for things you didn't know that you were looking for. And the final aspect of that is I'm actually a, um, uh, I collect a lot of stuff. So if you look at my Dropbox file, like if Dropbox was ever hit with a nuclear bomb or anything like that, my whole life would be devastated. So I keep lists of ideas in there. I keep articles that I want to read in there. Uh, I have a, a list that I keep called a spark file where I just like think of something at the moment and just get it out of my head into the spark file. Um, I keep a log. Now I just started doing this, a log of everything that I am, every book that I read. Well, I've always done that. Uh, keep a log of every book that I read, but now I keep a log of every book that I read every television show that I watch, every movie that I watch, every audio program that I listen to, just so I have a, just so I can capture and record that sort of stuff. Um, and wow. so just capturing and recording is, it's not very time. I mean, it's like, it's somewhat time consuming, but, but not crazy. Cause it just becomes like a habit. Um, you know, it's like, so, so if I go and watch like, okay, so last, so yesterday I went to the, so I got this gym. It's about a mile away from me. So yesterday I walked to the gym and I walked back from the gym and of course I like worked out at the gym. So I ended up, it ended up being like two hours and I ended up listening to this three part podcast series. And so, cause I was at the gym and so like to keep the log of that, it's like, okay, so what do I do? I come back to my office. I like write down, I like type in, this is the show I listened to today. Okay. That was 10 seconds. So it's not like, a, it's not very, it's not very burdensome. Um, so well, here's the, the, here's the follow up yeah. question then with, 
you're you're basically capturing a ton of data and that's part of yeah. your work as a scientist researcher author um curious uh provocateur but how do you then like how do you then distill and go back yeah. into that information because all the yeah, data information saying. saving yeah. is 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 it's one thing but being I able will to provide return. utility absolutely great, great 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 question so what i will do is i will return to say uh, I'll keep a massive list of ideas and I will return to that massive list of ideas for projects, let's say ideas for projects or even a spark file, which is like sort of a, uh, like just sort of a question or something like that. I will maybe, I will take say an hour or two every six months or so and go back over them. Um, and just go back over these lists and say, Hmm, that was a, um, that was a um, stupid idea. Why would I have possibly interested in that? You know, and and what I see when I go back over these things is that a few things uh, that a few things end up rising to the a few things end up rising to the surface. They end up sticking around for a long time, and those are things that I you know those are some of the things that I end up working on. So like a Spark file, like I'll see, I'll be I'll be I'll be transparent here. So I'm looking at my the Spark file from the last few things. And I'm like, okay, um, um, let me see here. We're about to see into your brain. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, okay, so, so, okay, no, this is, but I'm going to tell you, it's like, it's like, who knows what you're going to do with this? So, so, so I'll give you two things on this list, okay, that just shows you the randomness of all of this. Okay, so I have a question. What is the Starbucks of sports betting? Okay. If I think that sports betting is going to become a, it's already becoming a big deal. That betting on 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 professional sports is is becoming a bigger and bigger deal because of changes in the law that yeah. allow states to uh, permit it. And so, if this becomes so, what is the Starbucks of that? Okay, wow. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> okay, but it, the thought occurred to me. All right, and so you know maybe there maybe someone's going to come around and come, come up with a, a, a chain of storefront sports betting parlors. That are not these kind of CD OTB off track betting things that used to exist, but you know are more um, like Starbucks. Who knows? You know, so it's just a question. Who that that's the kind of thing that probably will go nowhere. Um, or like I, I was at a lecture and and I and I found this thing kind of amazing to me. One third of people in the West will be diagnosed with cancer. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now I don't know what that is like. So again, that's just like. Wow, that's a really interesting notion. I don't know what, if anything, I will do with that. Um, but you're not but, afraid to record it, and yeah, and it, and the thing is, the cost of recording it is like, like, lit, like, literally, like I heard that and wrote it down. Okay, it's like ten seconds. You know, so you look at this whole list of stuff, and it's not like a, it's not you know a massive, 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 um, massive amount of time. I mean, it really isn't. What I'm finding is, I'm thinking back to a dear friend of mine. Um, he's the the lead singer. His name is Chris. Uh, he's the lead singer of a band called the Presidents of the United States of America. Sure. Uh huh. And and um, his there's this. He has the same thing. Just like he would just record um, himself singing, or just randomly into these audio files, and then. You know, I, I asked the same question of him. It's like, great, you just put a bunch of like dead end threads in a in a in a Dropbox or wherever he's putting them. But 
but it's all about the extraction. So here we are. You, you just told us you walk to the gym, you consume these things. You're are the presidents of the United States still around? No, they just they 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 broke up a couple of years ago. His new band is called Casper Baby Pants now, and he just he sings oh, songs wow, for okay. kids, kids because oh, he doesn't no. want to deal with any of the because uh, they were part of, of that whole. Well, you're a Seattle person, they, weren't they? Part yeah. of the whole like Seattle, oh, yeah. Nirvana yeah. grunge flannel she's lump, shirt thing. She's lump. She's in my yeah. head. Yeah. So yeah, the, yeah. and you know, multi platinum whatever. Uh, but it was all about the extraction. Like, how do you go back into that material and get utility? So. If I, I understand that you've got this great Dropbox, and is that just the exploration of your curiosity? And then when you you find something out in the world that motivates you, and then do you go through your your portfolio of ten second um, bits and extract and extract your next masterpiece? Maybe. Um, or what I'll do is I will. Um, um, Sometimes it depends. So, so for instance, like I have a, I have a running list of ideas for like books and other long form projects and I'll, I'll look at, and, and every once in a while, um, every once in a while, uh, I'll go back through that. And a lot of them stuff I'm not interested in or stupid ideas. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but as I said earlier, some ideas will actually remain there, you know, six month check-in after six month check-in after six month check-in. Uh, and, and those are things that, uh, that I might end up, those are things I might end up pursuing. I can also see, like, for instance, let's take that, this is a, a silly example. Let's take that cancer factoid, um, about one third of a minute. Okay. It could be that at a later stage, six months from now, a year from now, I'm working on a project and suddenly that becomes relevant. And that's actually a piece of data I can use in writing a paragraph. But there's no way I would have been able to simply to retrieve that from my memory, but simply having it out of your head into a system is is really helpful. But you have to what you have to be able to tolerate is that most of the stuff on this list is stuff I will never use. <laughs> and people say, "Oh my God, that's crazy!" And for me, it's like that's life, because I because I'm confident enough that some that some tiny portion of them are going to be amazingly useful. Yeah. But that's, the, the, I guess, the same is true for for photography, right? Like if you take how many pictures on your phone, I've got, I think last time I took, I got like 66,000 pictures on my phone. And how many of those am I going to actually use? Not very many. And it, yeah. it does, but it, it does have to do with like repetition and bulk and like go back to the three yards. There's a sort of a work ethic that has to come around to it. So I want to bend this little arc that we're on right now a little bit tighter and say, Great. So it seems like a, the, a huge piece of your process is intuition, right? And, and did, was, did you, were you born with your, this natural ability? No, to I don't trust, think that it's intuition. The work? Oh, okay. I don't think that is intuition. I think that it, it, it is, it is, um, cause I think I'm much too anal retentive to, and analytical for intuition. I think what it is, it's, 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 it's hunches. It, it, but I, I think I'm willing to follow hunches. So maybe it is something intuition, but I'm not willing to follow hunches over the cliff. I, you know, I was like, hunches are good. Data is better. But, but, but good hunches can lead you to conclusions that are rooted in evidence. Yeah, I would see. I'm couching that strictly in intuition because okay, what cool. is a yeah, hunch? Yeah. What, what is a hunch if it's not? Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that makes, that, that makes sense. So, uh, but, but I think that the, I think the precursor of intuition and the way that you're describing it is curiosity. 
because you're not going to have intuition unless you're curious about where things are and where they're going. That if you're walking down the street, if, if you're walking, if you're walking down the street and you are like not noticing, Hey, what are those people doing? Why are they walking that way? And it said another way, Whoa, what's that weird thing on somebody's yard? Um, wow. Everybody, does everybody in my neighborhood have a Prius? You know, you're, you're, you're walking you're, and you're not noticing that stuff. You're not going to have intuitions about anything. I get it. I get it. You have to be willing to be, you have to be curious and, and just like, you know, open two ojos. You know, it's what I say to my kids all the time. It's like, open your eyes. So I'm going to take a leap here and I'm going to jump all the way to your most recent book, which is, uh, when the scientific secrets of perfect timing, what, like, let's layer this into our conversation and tell us what's the central finding of, of perfect timing. Well, again, it's one of those, it's the, the idea here is that we're very deliberate and intentional about what we do, who we do it with, how we do it, but we're less intentional about when we do things. And if you, once again, you look at the evidence, the evidence across multiple disciplines of science tells us that uh, there is, there is a decent amount of data and evidence to allow us to make systematically better, smarter, shrewder decisions about when to do things that when we make our we make our timing decisions or decisions about when to do things when to do your work during the day when to exercise when to start a project when to abandon a project that's not working we make those decisions based here's your friend again into on intuition and guesswork and that's the wrong way to do it we can make those kinds of decisions based on evidence and there's an array of really really interesting science across as i said really two dozen different disciplines that gives us the clues about how to make better decisions about timing. Keep going. I want to know when to oh. make, w- w- keep going. Well, it, so, so, so it depends. So what we know is that, okay, so let's take the unit of a day. One of the things we know about research from chronobiology and economics and social psychology in a lot of the medical sciences, in um, a lot of social psychology and decision-making is that our brain power doesn't remain static over the course of a day. Our brain power changes over the course of a day. It changes in material ways so that the difference between the daily high point and the daily low point can be significant. Uh, And it also tells us that the best time to do something depends on what you're doing. And so there is a way to use this evidence to think about how do you structure a day for maximum productivity, creativity, health. Um, Now, you're not going to get it perfect, but uh, you're going to get it. You're going to if you if you follow the evidence, you can get it better. Let's dissect Dan Pink. Do your own, run your own script on when are you best at, at uh, what kind of activities. Okay, so here's, what, and, and so here's what this, here's what this, here's what this, here's what, so, so what we're talking about here in this, so there are some, there's a lot of research in here showing that people's moods are over a course of a day are some follow a fairly regular pattern. There are, there's a lot of evidence showing that people perform differently on different sorts of tasks at different times of day. So the ultimate conclusion of all of this is what you, what you what you strive for is what social psychologists call the synchrony effect, which is can you match up your type, your task, and your time? Now, by type, I mean chronotype, and chronotype is an idea from the field of chronobiology, uh, you know, chrono time, biology, study of life. Uh, it's a field of science been around for several decades, a couple of Nobelists uh, that looks at our, our circadian rhythms and other kinds of diurnal patterns, and what it tells us is that. Human beings have different chronotypes. Uh, 
Some of us naturally wake up early and go to sleep early. Some of us naturally wake up late and go to sleep late. A lot of us are in the middle. Um, and, and I am somebody who is not quite a, an early person, not a full-fledged lark as they're called, but is larky. So I lean toward more of the early side. And what we know is this, someone like me who is a, has a more for more of an, a morning chronotype than an evening chronotype, I am much better doing my analytic work early in the day. Uh, what is it? And, and, and the reason for that is that, uh, is that during the, the early in the day, people like me, like a lot of people, I mean, our, my chronotype is very similar. The vast majority of people are hit their peak early in the day. Um, now we don't know enough to say everybody should start working at 4.30 AM. That's nonsense or 5.30 AM or 6.30 AM or 7.30. You got to figure that out on your own. But in general, early in the day for me, I'm better off doing analytic work, analytic work. It, it, because during that peak, that's when I'm most vigilant. And what vigilance means is my is I'm able to bat away distractions. So that makes it the best time to do work that requires just, you know, uh, focus, attention. Uh, and for me, like writing is a perfect example of that. Um, uh, writing is much writing is much more about your capacity to sit, do your work and not be distracted. And you want to do that during your peak. So so my so I will carve out the morning for writing. Uh, what we also know is that the next stage of the day is, is what we can call the trough. And again, there's a lot of data showing big declines in performance in the early to mid-afternoon. So what we should be doing then is our administrative work, um, you know, answering routine emails, filling out expense reports. And then for 80% of us, now the 20, there are 20% of people who are owls, they have a very different, who are nighttime, night, evening chronotypes are owls, very different pattern for them. Uh, for me, like later in the day, I should be doing work that required that benefits from a little bit more mental looseness because later in the day, in general, my mood is up uh, for people like me. My mood is up, but vigilance is down. So things that require some amount, you know, iterating ideas or collecting stuff or browsing or having conversations and things like that. And so basically what we want to do is we want to do our analytic work during our peak, which for most of us is the morning. Are, but for 20% of us night owls, it's much, much later in the day. We want to do our administrative work during the trough, which is the middle of the day. And then we want to do what psychologists call our insight work, you know, late afternoon and early evening. Again, for, that's 80% of us, roughly 80% of us, 75% of us, 25% of us have evening chronotypes. Those, so those folks are much, 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 much more complicated. And the traditional way of working, uh, the traditional corporate structure is really harmful to them. Mm hmm. So how knowing this about yourself, have you truly built your life around that schedule based on your own experience? I mean, well, you wrote the book. Yeah, so. I mean, yeah, I mean, so so what I did. So so actually I did change my schedule after doing the research on this book. And so what I do on writing days, is I come into my office, where, which is where I'm talking to you from right now. Uh, I come in not, not crazy early, like maybe 830 or so. And I will uh, give myself a word count, not an amazingly high word count, maybe 800 words. And, um, but I won't bring my phone with me into my office. I won't answer my email. I won't look at my email. I won't go on ESPN.com. Uh, all, uh, I will just, I will just write those 800 words and before I do anything else. Uh, and sometimes it takes me two hours. Sometimes it takes me four hours. Sometimes it takes me five hours, but I won't do anything else until I hit that number. And once I hit that number, I can do other kinds of things. And cause what I found is that during this peak period, uh, that's when I'm at my best for doing that kind of heads down work. If I, 
uh, and I perform differently at different times of day. So by segregating that time of day for writing and keeping it sacrosanct, that that ends up working for me. And so if I do, you know, so that's how you write a book. I mean, you know this, Chase. You know the yeah. way that you know. I I I mean the way you don't just sit down and write a book. You don't just sit down and like write it all at once. You don't just sit there and wait till the muse visits you and you you transcribe what the muse whispers in your ear. No way. Here's what you. Here's how you write a book. You come into your office and you write 800 words. Then you come into your office the next day and write another 800 words. Then you come into the office the next day, write another 800 words, look back on those previous 1600, fix those. Then you come into your office the next day, write another 800 words. And the next day, it's like, it's like I, I, I've always likened it to, to being a bricklayer, to building a, to building a brick wall. How do you build a brick wall? You come in, you put some bricks, lay some bricks, put some mortar between them, hope that it holds up. You're not finished with the wall yet, so what do you do? You come back the next day, put some more bricks. And, and so for me, that's how it's, but, but what the timing aspect of it is, is that there's a certain time of day where a, a few hours during the day, during this peak period in the morning, where I'm a much more efficient, astute, uh, bricklayer. And that's when I should be laying my bricks. Beautiful. All right. Super helpful. Thank you for that clarity. Big leap. Now I'm going to go zoom out to call it 90,000 feet. And if I'm, I'm just, yeah, way up there. And I'm Can I even breathe? I can't even breathe that high up. But... <laughs> you, you have oxygen. You're aboard a very, very special jet. Um, okay. And and you're looking down on all of the, as I am right now, and all these, these let's just focus on the written work, the, the books in specific. I'm just going to, I'm going to do a quick summary and I'm going to leave a couple out intentionally. Free Agent Nation. Yeah. Wildly acclaimed for a very provocative uh, perspective years and years ago when you came up with that one. We're going to go then to a whole new mind, which we opened with today, which is about how right brain people are going to rule the world and how that is uh, the dynamic, multi-layered, non-linear thinking is how, how is super critical. Drive, which is about motivation and what gets you up in the morning and what you should do about it. Selling how to sell, you know, to sell is human is another book. And then timing, timing about your own rhythms and when you're the most productive and effective. And, and that, that, that's a huge piece of the world that we don't always think about. So I'm now drawing a circle in all these books. And what it looks to me like is that is the modern framework for work. Like it's, it's <clears> literally <throat> that, that, and it, it's not aligned with um, necessarily with nine to five, it's not aligned with corporate structure. And even mm. I would say corporate structure is exploding, right? I, at creative live, we, if we don't have productions, people don't need to come into the office on Mondays and Fridays. So there's this remote work universe and is, is I, I'm maybe doing unnecessary or work that you didn't do. But as I look from this 90,000 foot viewpoint, you, you've described the future of the work over the past, you know, 15 or 20 years. Was that intentional? And how much of that do you believe? Well, two, two, those are two very different questions. So was it intentional? No, uh, I was just intentional. Uh, what I was intentional about was, again, in each instance, creating something that was good and useful that contributed to the world that clarified the complexity of the world. Um, so it wasn't intentional. I think in some cases, like many of these things, it might make sense retrospectively, but it wasn't certainly something I aimed at prospectively at all. Um, what was the second question? I've forgotten the second question. Just 
you know, if, if, well, I don't remember it either. I thought it was great. <laughs> so it couldn't have been that good. But it was, it, to me, it so was, you asked, you asked, was it, you asked, was it intentional? I can't, I surely can't remember what the first question was. And do you, you know, do you believe that what I'm saying? Oh, do I believe that, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't that, know. That, um, yeah, so that's what it was. Do, do you, do I believe you? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think there's some things I got right and other things I got wrong. But I think it got. I think it. I think it got. I like to think it got people a little closer to the truth. Well, for sure, there's a. But there's a ton of value, and and I'm, you know, admittedly, as we all do, we have to, you know, in some at some part, like look at this work or anything through the lens of our own experience. And I've just finished mm-hmm. reading this book we just talked about, and like all of the all the different pieces of the book about you know understanding who you are. What do you want to do with your life? How are you pursuing, you know, creativity and or whatever it is that you're interested in pursuing? You know, that's a lot about drive. And then there's the doing the thing and then doing it, you know, when's the right time to be doing it? How do you do it? What's the process? Mm-hmm. Um, and and if you're just doing this stuff in your parents' basement and you're not putting it out in the world, you're not really having an impact. And so in in, in some sense, you need to sell everything that you're doing, whether you're selling ideas or sure. you're actually yeah. selling um, yeah. and then, you know, this, the fact that the future is largely, um, oriented, not no longer around the factory and the farm and these linear ways of thinking, but around this very, very divergent and open landscape, if you will. And it's our job to harness it. And then free agent, like we're all a bunch of in, independent thinkers and doers. And now if look around like 50% of America has a side hustle. So I, I don't know how you. I'm right. You are like that's <laughs> and and it was. But it, it, to me, the, the macro question is: Was that intentional? And now, if it wasn't intentional, you've said it wasn't. What do you make of that? What do you make of that observation? Uh, well, I mean, I appreciate the way that I appreciate your analysis of it, and that's what. I, and you know, if that's if it if, again, like if it helps people get closer to the truth, um, that's super cool. I mean, that's what I that's what I set out to do as a writer. Uh, but, but again, you, you know, the, the other thing is like that, that, that's what it looks like from 90,000 feet right now. Uh, come back in a year or two years, maybe it looks a little bit different, but again, here's the thing coming, but here's the thing coming, but like, 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 it's like, like just when you go to intention, all right. When you go to intention, at least my intention, I am just trying to produce good stuff. That's what I'm trying to do. And because I feel like if I produce work that is good, that is useful to people, that entertains, that enlightens, that clarifies, the rest is going to work out for itself. And if it doesn't, that's fine, because the thing that would drive me up the wall more than anything else would be to produce shitty work and... (laughs) That and and so that's that's that to me is is what I worry about the most is like not producing something that is excellent because uh, I feel like if I produce excellence I'm going to be able to sleep at night and over time you know it will contribute to the world and I'll be able to feed my family. How do you reconcile that with your the requirement of just doing volume and to quote Anne Lamont like shitty first drafts you're writing 800 yeah, words a day that, that all 800 of those words are being used no. Exactly. Exactly. So if you think about it, like, like, absolutely. I'm, I'm a big Annie Lamont fan. And, and I agree with that 
I agree with that notion. But let's think about let's let's think about do, doing the math. All right. If I try to write 800 words a day, if I aspire to write 800 words a day, my books are maybe um, my books are maybe 70,000 words long. And so theoretically, under that, I should be able to do that book in 90 days. But I don't write these books in 90 days because I end up rewriting. I end up changing stuff. I end up throwing stuff away. I end up killing entire chapters, you know. So, um, you know, because, again, going back to the wall, that part of the wall is wobbly. I'm not going to I'm not going to put my name on a wobbly wall. So what I'm going to do is even though it hurts me, I'm going to knock down that part of the wall and rebuild it. Over and over and over. Until it's right. <laughs> I love it. All right. So I'm going to let you off the hook on that one because I, I think that that is fascinating to me and just an observation that it, that that is those are all of the pillars of, I think, the modern workforce of the future of um, not just our economy, but our, our well-being as as creators. And of course, that's my own lens. But, you know, when um, when you put art on the world, people are always taking their own lens to it. So that's my absolutely right. I agree with that completely. I, I agree with that completely. So, um, you know, so uh, so at some level, my intention matters. My intention matters a little bit. But ultimately, what really matters is how a reader interacts with it. So a reader reads a book or part of a book. What does the reader absorb? And then what does she do with that insight for the rest of her life? And that could be things that I would not have predicted. I'll give you a whole new mind is a good example of that. Um, I never expected that book to be a book that educators would be interested in, but it turned out some educators were interested in that book. I never expected that book to be something that say clergy people, particularly pastors were interested in that ended up being so you just never know just put out oh. good stuff just put out good stuff yeah there's something to be learned from that i, I don't let it guide me but i just a confession here um I was looking at uh the kindle version of my own book and seeing what other people had underlined you can see you know 600 people highlighted this yeah yeah it's fascinating isn't it it's really interesting it's really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, if I had to predict what people would underline, I would probably be wrong half the time. Yeah, and that's what I'm. I was, I was just learning. Yeah, yeah. But it's not interesting your, though. Goes back to your point on intention. Okay, yeah. so a burning question for a lot of folks who are listening is very much around. I'm going to go back to the selling part because as creators and entrepreneurs, selling ideas, selling ideas in, or selling them. Like, like literally selling them, selling a, a book, you know, a book proposal or a commission for anything Yeah, is there's this disconnect for so many people or they report a disconnect like, oh, I just love my doing my stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, that the if I just do good work, then it's going to get noticed. And, and I think that's fortunately for most become more widely debunked than in the past. Yeah, I think that, you're right. I think saying. you're right. The I cream rises right. to the top. I think we know that that's not yeah. the truth. Um, yeah. But I'm going to pull a or quote Or at least from, you can't rely You can't rely on it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so I'm going to pull pull a, a one-liner from um, one of the um, blurbs for your book, which is one in nine Americans works in sales, but so do the other eight. Mm-hmm. So if our audience, as we know they are, are largely creators and entrepreneurs, and we also know that that, that segment of the population str- struggles or sees themselves struggling with, with sales and selling their ideas. And you're telling me here that 
sales is is a critical part of not mm-hmm. just our professional life, but of being human. Talk to me more about that. Well, I mean, there there are a couple of things there. Number one is that if you if you look at what people do all day, actually follow what they do all day, a huge portion of it is selling in a broad sense. So they might be selling their products or services, but they're also persuading, influencing, convincing, cajoling other people. They're trying to get people to work on their team. They're trying to get their boss to do something different. They're trying to get their employees to do things in a different way. And so the ground truth of work is in America right now is that a big portion of it is people are spending a big portion of the time selling in the broad sense. That's one part of it. Um, for, for creatives and people like your listeners, I mean, it's just part of what you have to do. And instead of resisting it, I think you ought to lean into it for a couple of, for a couple of reasons. Number one is that uh, if you believe in what you've created, I actually think you have a moral obligation to tell the world about it. Uh, the second thing is that you have, I guess there are three reasons. The second thing is you have a pragmatic need to do that because you need to put food on the table. <laughs> the, the final thing though is that, and perhaps most important is that is that today selling isn't what we think it is. Um, the world, I think that sales has changed more in the past ten years than the previous one hundred. And so the skills that are necessary to be effective in persuading, influencing, and selling are very different today than they were uh, a while ago. And there's a like once again a decent amount of evidence about that. Say more. Keep going on that. Uh, what what are the well? I mean, skills? so okay, so so basically, so so most of what we know about sales has come from a world of information asymmetry, where the seller always had more information than the buyer. Uh, when the seller has more information than the buyer, the seller can rip you off. So just think about any kind of commercial transaction for a long time. The person selling whatever it was, whether it was an idea, whether it was a change concept, whether it was a car, whether it was a Winnebago, whether it was a house, whether it was a consulting arrangement, the people selling had more information than the people buying. Um, and so this is uh, this is why we have encoded in our laws and our customs of commerce, the principle of buyer beware. Buyers had to beware because sellers were at an edge. Um, and, and so the world, the world of selling was information asymmetric for a very long time. However, that's changed in the last 10 years. Uh, right now, uh, information asymmetry is less and less a thing. Uh, the world is moving greater, more and more toward information parity. And you see this in every domain. It used to be that the car dealer would know a lot more about cars, Toyotas, and that particular Camry than you could. Now you can go into that dealer knowing as mo- more sometimes about cars, about Toyotas, about Camrys, and that, that that dealer can. You look about hiring. In the old days, you know, when I first entered the labor market, uh, employers would say, oh, this is a great place to work. It has great benefits, and we get along well, and there are opportunities for advancement, and blah, 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 blah. Now anybody... And I had no way to check that out. Now, anybody worth anybody with a brain will say, okay, that's nice. Let me check Glassdoor, where people who work inside of a company report what it's really like to work inside that, that company. Information asymmetry to information parity. And so in a world of information asymmetry, you can be, you know, you can take the low road. In a role, in a world of information parity, that low road doesn't work very well. And so you have to enlist a different set of high road skills. Uh, which end up being things about, you know, tuning yourself to others, about staying buoyant in a face of rejection, about moving from problem solving to problem finding, and about going from accessing information to curating information. And so what I would say, this is, and I would say it in a more concise way, is that if you're resisting selling, 
Uh, there are three reasons to stop that resistance. One, if you create something great, you have an obligation to tell the world about it. Two, uh, if you have a family, you have an obligation to support your family. So get out there and sell your stuff. And three, more important than anything else, selling is not what you think it is. Beautiful. Let's go back to number one for a second. Moral obligation. That's a that's a weighty point of view. And I'm going to say it back to you. So you believe that if you create something that's valuable, that you have a moral obligation for sharing it. Say more. To tell people about it. Sure. Uh, because I think it's, I think it's an act of, I think it's, uh, I think it's not fair to other people. And I think it's an enormous act of ego to say, oh, well, if I just create something, people will come to it. Uh, I just don't think the world works that way. And if you really believe in something, then I think you have an obligation to tell the world about it because you're, because if it's something that's so great, you're disrespecting me by not telling me about it. Wow. That's powerful. I, I, I think I, there's a, um, the filter, people's filters are on 11 for what they share. Just look at the Instagram culture, right? There's parodies of Instagram, my Instagram photo, and then real life. I mean, you juxtapose those two yeah, things. Yeah, 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 difference. So how do you manage that in a world like we're living? Because, in? I mean, I think that a lot of the, a lot of the social media, a lot of that, that's just, that's basically just a, a, that's basically a, um, a kind of a vacuous performance. Those are, those are people who aren't necessarily have created anything. Those are people who are just trying to feel, you know, in many cases, just feel a little bit better about their lives. That said, if you like, okay, here's, here's a good example. Okay. Cindy Sherman, the great, um, um, uh, artist, photographer, uh, genius. Uh, I mean, she has an Instagram feed. So, and, and I love seeing that because Cindy Sherman is so ingenious that seeing her work, uh, I'm, I'm delighted that she's showing her work. Uh, somebody who is basically doing a configured, you know, a, a concocted photograph about how delicious their brunch was. I couldn't care less about. <laughs> I love it. Moral obligation. So for those of you at home are listening and what I find anytime this topic comes up is that people, their best work is, you know, it's under their thumb or in their basement or in a box somewhere. And there's this reluctance to share because there's this, this a, a performance part of our culture where we're not, um, we're not, despite having access to all the tools, we don't have, to me, it's, it's a mental orientation. It's like a point of view that this is valuable to put out in the world, despite, um, what others might think if you believe that there's value putting mm -hmm. it on the world, it mm -hmm. helps you identify and orient mm -hmm. around a tribe and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. exactly. So one thing that stems from this for me is right now, people who are cringing they're saying yes i've heard this a million times i know i need to put my work out there or fill in the blank equivalent and there's and then they say but i'm an introvert what's your advice to people like that well i mean we, we have research on that what it shows is that if you look at people who are successful in sales we have the myth that the only people who succeed in sales are people who are strongly extroverted and that is fundamentally not true if you look at the research there's no evidence of that uh, what the evidence shows is that the people who are most successful at sales, this is some work out of the University of Pennsylvania, uh, the people who are most successful at sales are people who are ambiverts. That is, they're not strongly introverted. They're not strongly extroverted. They're somewhere in between. And the truth of the matter is, is that what personal personality psychology has told us is that introversion and extroversion doesn't work the way that Myers-Briggs claims that it works. Uh, it, it isn't like I'm an E or I'm an, I'm an, I'm an, o, I'm a, I'm an I. 
Um, it's a, it's a spectrum. And what the spectrum looks like is you have a few people who are very, very super strong extroverts. You have a few people who are very super strong introverts, but most of us are kind of in the middle and being kind of in the middle equips you to be effective in sales because we know from the research that ambiverts are the most effective salespeople and chances are you're an ambivert. Hmm. For people who don't identify as an ambivert, do they need to become one? Well, I think most people are. I mean, if you look at, uh, here's the thing. It's like, we can't think about it as whether you're, it's not black and white, it's a spectrum. So if you say that black is extrovert and white is introvert, most people are some shade of gray. And what the research tells us is that being in that shade of gray is effective. So um, my hunch is that is that most, again, if you look at the, the distribution of the population is predominantly ambivert. So the odds then are good that a particular person listening to your show is an ambivert. And so in that case, don't worry about your personality. Worry about things like, can you understand where your customer or prospect is coming from? Uh, can you anticipate problems? Uh, can you find problems that they didn't, people don't realize that they had? Can you explain what you're talking about in a compelling way? Can you tell a good story? Can you serve people very well? And that's what ends up mattering a lot more than personality. Yeah, for those of you who are listening, you need to rewind that, write down that list of things that Dan just said, because that basically is like the thing, uh, uh, that list is a beautiful recognition of the things that so many of us are afraid of um, that we actually need to. Uh, and the reason the, and the reason the book is called To Sell is Human is that if you look at the skills that are necessary, they're actually pretty human, um, pretty human capabilities. That is, they're things like, can you get out of your head into someone else's head, uh, understand where they're coming from? Uh, can't, you know, and, and, and so the best way to be effective at sales is to actually be like, act like a human being. <laughs> Fortunately for everyone listening, you are a human being, so you've got potential. <laughs> that, that, that's, um, I might've, might've stretched that a little bit too far, but, um, all right. Last topic that I want to cover is to me, perhaps the most important, and it's why we do anything. And I'm going to ground it in motivation, right? And, and this goes back to your book drive, which, um, I'll, I'll also read from something that you've written, which is most people believe that the best way to motivate is with rewards like money or the carrot and the stick approach. That's a mistake. And so you go on to talk specifically about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. How do those things fit into this larger picture of what motivates all of us? Well, here's the thing. So motivation is complicated. Human beings are, have a mix of motivations, right? We do things. We have biological motivations. We eat when we're hungry. We drink when we're thirsty, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we do respond in certain circumstances to rewards and punishments, but we also have other motivations. We do things because we like it. We do things because uh, it contributes. We do things because it's the right thing to do that. And 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 that um, that that final drive, that third drive, has been woefully undervalued in business. And when you look at the research again, fifty years of research in behavioral science, what it tells us is that uh, certain these carrot and stick motivators are good for some kinds of tasks, particularly simple tasks with short time horizons, but they're less effective for complex tasks with longer time horizons. And if you want people to do more complex things that require judgment, creativity, discernment, conceptual thinking, 
what you want is you want them to be paid fairly, paid well, and then to have some control over what they do, how they do it, to, that's autonomy, uh, mastery, which is the ability to get better at something that matters, to make progress and meaningful work, and purpose, which is, do you know, you know, do you know why you're doing something? Do you, is what you're doing making a difference and is it making a contribution? And those end up being much more um, uh, powerful motivators than an endless regime of carrots and sticks. Carrots and sticks as motivators have their limits. They're not entirely bad for every single thing, but they are very limited in their effectiveness. You want to give us some techniques for putting that to work? Uh, it depends on what your domain, it, it depends on what the domain is. I mean, it's a lot of, it's a lot of techniques for management. So what you should do for like, like in managing is, you know, don't come up with these crazy, if you're, if your people are doing more creative conceptual kind of work, don't come up with these crazy, complicated, baroque uh, incentive schemes uh, that people are able to game, pay people fairly, pay people well, take the issue of money off the table, give them freedom to do good work, uh, allow them, give them feedback so they know when they're making progress, plug them into a purpose. Um, and if you hire great people and pay them fairly and give those kinds of working conditions, you're going to be fine. What about for the individual? Because most of the people here, like whether you have a nine to five and your, your side hustle is really your, your passion or, or otherwise I'm going back. And, and again, I, I, I know the listeners really well, and there's mostly what we feel or mostly what I hear from their reports is I, my motivations don't line up with the things I'm being told that make money or make a good living or a good business or good art. Do you have any advice for people like that? Yeah. I mean, I, that's a somewhat different issue. I mean, um, that's a somewhat different issue. I think that, uh, I think that in many cases it's a balancing act. Um, and you have to be, you have to consciously and intentionally balance things. So, when I first started working as a writer, uh, the first year I went out on my own, um, I did some corporate speech writing, which I hated, but it made money. And but I knew why I was doing it. And so uh, so I just think you have to be uh, it's tough. It's a tough issue. You have to be intentional about it. you have to be intentional about that. You have to be pragmatic about it. Uh, and, um, you know, even now in you know, in my own writing, it's not like I have perfect sovereignty over every freaking thing that I do. There's some things that I'm obligated to do. So you just suck that up and you do it with intention and you, you see it as a way to enable the other things. I love your, it's, it's almost like ruthless practicality as a basis for, <laughs> no, it's, but it's, it's, it's a brilliant, it's like utility is, <laughs> is like, you know, it's the mother of invention. It's, it's, I mean, it's, here's, it's uh, like, you know, I just, I just think it's like, like, you know, do your work. Do your work, serve your customer, take care of your family. Repeat. <laughs> yeah. And you do that, you'll be fine. Don't be a jerk and you'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I really, I, I'm not joking around, Chase. I really do mean that. If you do, I, mean, I never thought about that until just now. Like basically, what did I say? Do your work, take care of your family, serve your customer, don't be a jerk. People who do that are fine. If it was just so easy, though, if it was that easy. Well, I think it is that here's easy. Here's the thing. No, but because I think that a lot of I think that a lot of things pull us, I think a lot of things pull us away from that, and so there are temptations to be a jerk. Don't do that, um, uh, even if it even if it it hurts you in the short run. Uh, I think that a lot of people actually don't do the work. They talk about doing the work. They complain about the work. They complain about just show up and do your work. Um, 
And, you know, if you have a customer based business, serve your customer well, serve your customer like you would want to be served. And uh, does, it, does this create perfection? No way. Is that is it better than simply is it uh, uh, better than gazing at your navel and complaining about the circumstances of your life? Heck, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Again, I go back to ruthless practicality. That's a br- <laughs> brilliant bow to tie on a couple of decades worth of work that you put out in the world. And um, so I think people know how to find you on the internet, but in case they don't, um, you want to give us some coordinates? Uh, that, you, you go to my website, which is, yeah, go to the website, which is danpink.com, uh, D-A-N-P-I-N-K dot C-O-M. And then um, I, I, there you can find information about an email newsletter that I do. It's totally free. It has some stuff that I do. By week, Check out the right? books. Yep. Yeah. So last question. You shared with us the way that you work and you've got this file, the spark file. Now I even, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I like that name. It's good. Good, uh, good name. Yeah, it's not mine. I, I didn't come up with that. I got it from, I don't know people have done this kind of thing before. Okay. But what's in your spark file? What's next? If you had to point, point us in a direction, what are you working? Is there anything you're working on right now? That's top secret that you can share with us that you haven't shared with anybody else? No, no, not really. I mean, at this point, you know, I'm, um, just always writing you know, 800 words what, a day. What, well, thinking through what the next big project is going to be and, and whether it's going to be any good. And, uh, and also, you know, actually the, the truth is the, the truth is that a lot of what I'm focused on right now is going on vacation with my family. So I'm going on a trip with my family starting next week. And that's, that's really what I'm looking forward to more than anything else. That's the Buddhist, like you're living in the present. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, Dan, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for uh, writing books that help uh, creators and entrepreneurs follow thanks. their passion, Th- tap into their Thanks for having humanity. me. Thanks for having me on the show, and thanks for pressing me to think harder. I appreciate it. <laughs> Says one of the hardest thinking people that I've whose books I've read. Uh, I appreciate that. I'll, I'll take it. And thanks again for everything. Really appreciate All right, having you on the show. My pleasure. Thanks okay. for having me. Okay. Bye, Dan. Bye. All right. That about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that, that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn so check that out they're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet all right until again uh, probably tomorrow i hope i'll hear you i'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and i'll look for your comments on the internets bye